a rising star in cannabis, a next generation of leaders, and one to watch. That's just a few of the titles awarded to my next guest. Tell me, boy, you make me so bored. You need to walk the other way. I tell you once more. Welcome back to Women Leading in Cannabis, where we go deep and get real with the pioneering women shaping today's cannabis industry. You can find us on the PodConnects Network, on iTunes, Spotify, and Pandora. And if you like what you hear, subscribe to Women Leading in Cannabis. I'm your host, Kira Reed. I'm here today with Jessica Gonzalez, cannabis and intellectual property attorney at Hiller PC and outside general counsel for a national organization, Minorities for Medical Marijuana. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. Jessica was named on New Jersey Biz's Next Generation of Leaders for 2021 for her work influencing cannabis policy in New Jersey. She was deemed one of the 22 people to watch in the New Jersey cannabis industry in 2022, one of 21 people to watch in the New Jersey cannabis industry in 2021, and named as one of New Jersey's top 20 cannabis influencers in 2020. Most recently, Jessica was awarded the Rising Star Award by the New Jersey Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, the largest chamber of commerce in New Jersey. Jessica is a member of the International Cannabis Bar Association, where she was appointed as chair of the Social Equity CLE webinar series. Jessica was a member of the Social Impact Committee for New Jersey Can 2020, the coalition that ran the most successful cannabis campaign in the country. She's been quoted and featured in numerous media outlets, such as the New York Times, Rolling Stone, New Jersey Law Journal, and Emerald Magazine. What an impressive list of accolades. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a wild ride. (laughs) Tell us why you chose law as a career and why cannabis. Sure. So... I was one of those strange teenagers who knew that I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, And really what that stemmed from was a need to want to be able to defend myself in a world that I consider to be threatening. So I am an immigrant of this country. I'm the first of my family to graduate from a private university in the U.S. I'm the first to go to law school. I was the first to open up my own business. And with a lot of firsts, you know, comes a lot of uh, the need to be creative, the need to have grit and be able to work through a lot of problems on your own. And when I looked at the legal field, I said, this pervades every area of every single person's life, that if I can get a good hold of the legal field and knowledge about the law, then I'll be able to defend myself in this world. Um, And that's how I looked at it. So I ended up, you know, choosing Boston University because they had a concentration for a law within their business school. Um, I did in finance, um, but I took the law courses there. And then I went to law school and I absolutely loved it. Um, But I actually used to joke around in law school 
that I would become a weed attorney. Um, and through the years of joking, I ended up manifesting it. So, so everybody out there definitely got to be, you know, careful with your words. Um, but I always thought it was a joke because I didn't think that it was actually something that was possible, at least, you know, back in that time, you know, we're talking 2013, 2014. Um, and then the reason how I got into, into cannabis law per se is because I was in my first year of being an attorney and I was managing domestic and international trademark portfolios um, for musicians, music companies, music insurance companies. But I wasn't particularly passionate about the industry itself. I loved intellectual property. I loved the idea of being able to protect your manifestations that only exist in your mind. But I wasn't particularly passionate about the industry. And I wanted to make sure that you know, if I had worked so hard, sacrificed so much for this career, that it would be something that I actually believed in. And so, you know, I was about 25 years old at the time, baby lawyer, first year, and I said, there has to be something I can do with my legal degree that I actually believe in. And at that point, I said, well, what have been the two constants in my life? And the two constants in my life were my spiritual beliefs. And I've been smoking weed since I was 17 years old. So I was like, I don't think I can do much with my spiritual beliefs, but I think that I can do something here with cannabis. And serendipitously enough, this was the same year that Governor Murphy of New Jersey started touting that he was going to legalize cannabis within the first 100 days of him taking office. So as soon as he announced that, I said, this is an industry I have to get involved in as a new attorney, um, you know, as immigrant of this country, as one, uh, you know, somebody that comes from the community most harmed um, from the prohibition of cannabis. This sounds like a good opportunity for me to be a leader in this space and perhaps help out with policy because everything is so new. So that was sort of the rationale on how I got both into law and then into actual the cannabis industry. Well, I'm really glad I asked you that question. That was a really powerful answer. Thank you for sharing that. So the East Coast is going through some major growth right now. Can you share some insights from the front lines? You know, what can we really expect from this market over the next year, over the next five years? Sure. So... You know, we just legalized, right, 2020, November 3rd, 2020 was when it went to the ballot initiative here in New Jersey. Um, It was uh, overwhelmingly won. Uh, 57% of New Jersey residents uh, voted in favor of legalization. And then after that happened, we had to get through the legislation. Governor Murphy ended up signing the bill into law February 22nd of 2021. So we're only really coming up at about one year of it actually being legal legalized um, in New Jersey. We only received our regulations about a few short months ago, about four or five months ago. So right now we're in the midst of application licensing. So the application process opened up December 15th for cultivators and processors and testing labs, March 15th the application period will open up for retailers. Um, So right now we're really right in the middle of the first round of licensing. So definitely a very historic time, you know, here in New Jersey. Um, But our office also operates in New York as well. And New York is a bit behind. Um, You know, we're not really expecting to see an application round really until either the end of this year, maybe beginning of next year, because we still don't have regulations yet. Whereas here in Jersey, we do have regulations. Um, So what I expect to see in the next year, one, I expect to start seeing um, applicants actually getting licensed in New Jersey. I'm not so sure if we're going to see any, you know, stores opening up just yet in the in the next year because so much needs to happen before it occurs. We will start to see licenses being awarded, um, at least on the New York front. 
in about a year, I hope to see um, an application period actually open once the regulations have been issued and adopted. So that's where we are here, at least, you know, in the tri-state area. And, you know, we are also getting involved in Connecticut as well, who we do hear um, may actually end up coming out the licensing round in the next few months. It's really that, that that area is so unique because those three states are, they're almost so interconnected. They're like one state sometimes. How do you think the industry is going to address things like interstate commerce and taxation. Sure. I think that there is going to have to take a sort of regional approach. I know that governors, you know, have met. I know that there has been this goal of trying to take a regional, you know, approach, especially as we're going to wait for Pennsylvania to jump on um, as well. Um, But what we did know is that as soon as one state legalized, it was going to be a domino effect and New Jersey was going to be that state. Um, So to the folks there in New York and Connecticut and Pennsylvania, you 100% have New Jersey to thank for this because they definitely weren't going to want those tax dollars to start coming into New Jersey, staying in New Jersey, and then having residents of New York, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, then divert product into their own state. Inevitably, that would happen because all of our states are so interconnected. You have folks who work in New York who live in Jersey and people who work in New York but live in Jersey, such as myself. Um, So it's very few places in the nation that we actually see that. Um, But I do believe that eventually some sort of regional approach is going to have to take place just because of so much commuting that takes place before. Um, But I'm not so sure, you know, how everybody's going to get on board because even, you know, we're seeing our licensing schemes are different. Um, Though we're seeing some similarities amongst the states, um, the states do have to take into consideration their specific demographic, you know, their own culture. So while I'd like to see, um, you know, an approach that encompasses all three or four of these states, I think we're going to see it's going to be a little bit difficult to try to get it all the same because there really isn't one state that you can look at and say, hey, they did this correctly. So I think that each state is still trying to tweak it and almost one up each other, which is not necessarily a bad thing. You focus a lot of your work on social equity. What is the state of social equity in the tri-state area right now? And I want to, I'm going to kind of combine two questions that I have into one, because you also work with the absolute lovely and amazing Roz McCarthy on minorities for medical marijuana. And I'd like you to also tell us about that organization. Who do you serve? What is your mission? How do you get involved? But I'd also like to hear about it in the context of what's happening with social equity in the tri-state area right now, because those two are obviously very intertwined for you. So if you can tell me, you know, what some of the challenges are in the market, where do you think that the uh, states on the East Coast are getting it right? Where are they getting it wrong? And then let's hear about um, your work with medical uh, minorities for medical marijuana. Sure. So, you know, let's start off with, with the positives of what the states really have gotten right in terms of social equity. So the one thing that I will say that has been consistent, especially in these three states, is that the folks who are creating these laws, creating these regulations are listening to advocates. And we have the advantage here on the East Coast of being able to see what worked in other legalized states and what didn't work. Um, And that's why sometimes, you know, first mover advantage um, isn't particularly an advantage. Um, And so we have the late mover advantage of being able to look at it through a, a lens of sort of 2020 and see We don't want to repeat the same exact mistakes. Um, We would like to replicate certain things that have done well, but also we've been able to see in terms of business transactions with MSOs and social equity applicants and what has gone wrong there and how we can continue to protect these social equity applicants past the licensing phase. So for example, New Jersey did something that's very unique in its regulations. It instituted 
um, various guardrails against predatory practices um, on a contractual basis. So the New Jersey Commission says, we want to look at all of your financial source agreements. We want to look at all of your master services agreements. There are so many different ownership restrictions in order to avoid all of these monopolies and oligopolies, you know, that we've been seeing. Um, and so now, you know, these commissions are now getting involved in these transactions because advocates have been telling them, listen, pretty language and statute and regulations is fine. But when it comes down to the practical business sense and actual transactions taking place, there's a lot more that's happening when you lift, you know, when you lift and you look under the hood. And so, New Jersey is staying away from vertical integration in the same way that New York is staying away from vertical integration. So New Jersey said for the first two years, um, and the first two years started last year, you cannot concurrently own a processing cultivation and a dispensary license at the same time. They are moving away, you know, from this model, but New Jersey placed a two-year cap on it. So come February 2023, applicants will be able to own all three concurrently, but only one type of each license. So it's not like, you know, in Michigan where you can own, you know, a handful of dispensary licenses, New Jersey has still said you're going to have one dispensary, you're going to have one processing, you're going to have one cultivation. So New York is doing something very similar, but with New York, we don't have any deadlines in their statute themselves. New York just said you cannot concurrently sell and cultivate and process at the same time, but we don't have a timeline. Like I said, New Jersey put a two year on it. We don't have one for New York just yet. So we may see that in regulations, which we're anticipating sometime in spring as well. And I think that's one of the big major developments that we've seen because typically all of these medical programs start out with these huge vertical operations. And I think what states are seeing is that it's not, you know, these, even though these companies are well capitalized and are able to, you know, start producing, they're not necessarily producing the best product. They are, you know, they're in control of the price. So with the control of the price, there's little motivation for product diversification. There is little motivation to lower the prices. Um, and so a lot of these patients are having a hard time finding product. They're having a hard time affording the product. So what is the solution to that? The solution is we have to bring in more competition. But if you're only going to be accepting vertical operators, there's only very few companies out there, you know, who are going to be able to apply for one of these licenses when the licensing application um, actually uh, requires capital and human capital and property for you to have. So if you divide these operations um, as sort of standalone licenses, it gives folks more of an opportunity to be able to come and actually receive one of these licenses. And this is what we wanted to see. We wanted to make sure that applicants, you know, minority, women, social equity applicants all have a meaningful opportunity to participate. But when you're only awarding, you know, like New Jersey only awarded, you know, in 2018, six vertically integrated licenses, and then only awarded 24 in 2019, these caps are also very dangerous um, and can be quite detrimental. So what we're also seeing is we're moving away from caps as well. So New York doesn't have any statutory caps. Jersey only has a cap on the cultivation, but that's only until February 2023. Um, so I think the fact that we're now seeing 
Um, also offices being created, you know, office of cannabis readjust, uh, investment, um, New Jersey has what's called the office of minority women and disabled veterans. You know, these offices typically came after the fact in other legalized states. We are now seeing them in the statute itself, such that it is mandatory that states create these, these offices. So, you know, sort of to summarize what I'm seeing is we're getting away from vertical integration. We are seeing commissions starting to get involved in the contractual business, you know, sort of side of things as well. Um, no capping on certain licenses and creating these various offices to help oversee minority women and social equity applicants and help support them throughout the process. So I, I love this. This is such a great approach, but I'm curious if you're limited to one dispensary license, what does that do to the um, potential corporate money coming in um, to someone who wants to build a brand of dispensaries? What is going on there now when you look at it in terms of funding the industry there with corporate money when there's not a lot of opportunity for them to build a solid brand or take over you know, multiple places at once? I think the states are still being conservative. I don't think that the regulations that we are seeing now is going to be the regulations that we see in two or three years. Um, so, you know, typically regulations are only good for the first year. Um, so New Jersey right now is even the process of starting to prepare regula new regulations that have to be adopted before August of this year. Um, so I think that, you know, while these states are taking this more conservative approach, they're trying to um, dissuade, you know, these multi-state operators from creating all these shell companies and different subsidiaries and then being able to own um, and control the market, I can see, you know, the value in that. And I think once the state starts seeing that this maybe is not happening and that, you know, this sort of deterrence model is working, um, that they will start to allow um, other operators to expand. Um, the, the reason why I say that is because, especially here in New Jersey, the medical operators can each have two satellite dispensaries each, so they can effect effectively own up to three. So, but they did not allow that at first. It took years for that to happen. So I think we would see the exact same thing in the adult use market. I just think it's going to move incrementally. Interesting. And so how does your work with uh, minorities for medical marijuana play into all of this? Sure. So I'm their, you know, I'm under outside general counsel and I've, I've held that role for about two years um, and really it's helping, you know, uh, guiding, you know, just the same way any lawyer would, right? Any potential contracts, any potential litigation that's happening, anything that's happening on the policy standpoint. And because uh, Minorities for Medical Marijuana, they have over 27 chapters, you know, in the U.S., we typically look to, you know, the presidents of those chapters to engage with their states. Um, because I'm in New Jersey, you know, I have, and New York as well, um, I have the great honor of being able to also get involved in those policy considerations under the hat of Minorities for Medical Marijuana, um, which really helps um, to put me in the driver's seat in terms of how policy should be shaped because, you know, there's one thing of coming into the conversation as somebody who's representing applicants versus somebody who's coming in, um, you know, under the guise of a nonprofit organization who's just looking to push, you know, better policy in place. Um, but M4MM has been extremely engaged um, in the conversation, you know, with both, but a lot of times it is spearheaded by the presidents of those chapters. Interesting. And how did you come to be involved with them? I came to be involved with them back, I think I would say 
in early 2019, um, I actually first began as the vice president of Latinx Outreach. Um, so at that time, the director of Latinx Outreach was Ronnie Soto, who was one of the co-founders of Canna Gather. And we were just talking about the lack of representation amongst the Latino community um, that I don't really see much in terms of either, you know, ownership or even part of these organizations. Um, and so he said, well, if you want to, you know, help get the message out, you can come and help me. So I just began to help him just get the message out there. Um, and, you know, we started putting out newsletters, really highlighting uh, Latino advocates, Latino business owners, anybody who was doing great work in the space. We started a Latinx cannabis roundtable as well here in New York and New Jersey, trying to bridge together that gap as well. And then when the general counsel for minorities for medical marijuana left to take a new position, they asked me if I would um, take over and I gladly said yes. So let's talk about what your experience has been as a Hispanic woman in the cannabis industry. How did you deal with the challenges you've faced? And then what wins have you experienced that were unexpected? Sure. So I think some of the challenges... Um I think one of the first ones was that nobody took me seriously. Um, I was one, I'm a young attorney. Uh, two, uh, if you look at me, you know, I'm, I'm all of five foot one. Um, if I wear no makeup, you probably think I was 16. Um, so I also have that, you know, when I would go out there into networking events. But one of the challenges was nobody could see what I saw um, in this vision that I had of what was going to happen here, you know, on the East Coast. And I'm working in a very white male dominated area. So less than 2% of attorneys in the country are Latina. I believe it's 1.7%. So I'm operating in a field where nobody looks like me, where nobody understands my culture, where nobody comes from where I come from. So when I tried to put forth my vision, when I tried to articulate what I saw was going to happen and how we should be getting involved, it was downplayed. Um, I was laughed at. In many rooms, um, I was made fun of with, you know, in rooms of, you know, 50 white male partners. I was then penalized for it at one law firm that I was at for attempting to get involved. I was told, do not tell anybody you're going to a cannabis event. Do not tell anybody you're going to MJ Biz. Um, you know, the firms weren't particularly supportive of me trying to take continuing legal education um, courses to understand this industry. Because as an attorney, you know, we're still, we have our own ethics guidelines and we need to make sure that always abiding by them. And if I was going to get involved in this field, I wanted to make sure that I understood the rules and what I could and could not do. And the firms weren't particularly supportive. And so I, I left many of those firms. I have bounced around to a couple of firms really until I found my fit. But at that point, the only thing I could do was open up my own law firm. So I did that for about a year with another Latina partner, business partner of mine. Um, and it was specifically to get involved in this industry, help lower the barriers to entry, provide affordable legal services, um, you know, to individuals. So it was definitely a, a difficult road. Um, but, you know, one day I was coming back and um, I was telling my mom, they're not supportive. They don't want to, um, they, they're not encouraging me. They really just don't want me to be involved in this industry. And my mother said to me, she said, but do you want to be in this industry? And I said, well, yes. And she said, well, is this course that you want to take, is it worth it for you? Is it going to benefit your own education? I said, yes. Yeah. She goes, then you pay for it yourself and you take it. And that's exactly what I started to do. Um, I didn't start looking at these law firms and say, oh, they're not supporting me. I guess I'm not going to do it. I said, fine, 
I'm, if you will not invest in me, I will invest in myself. And that was absolutely the best decision, you know, I could have ever made. Um, and then what I thought was a weakness of mine, which was, you know, coming, you know, being a first, you know, generation, being an immigrant of this country, um, ended up being a huge strength for me because I was so different from everybody else in that room. Um, And what I started to realize was even as a Latina immigrant of this country, I have certain privileges that I need to leverage. You know, I'm a citizen of this country. I speak English and I have the ESQ at the end of my name that gets me into a lot of rooms I otherwise would not have been able to enter. So when I started to get involved in this industry, I kept getting the social equity questions directed at me. And I was almost like, I can answer other questions, but it always kept coming to me. And I said, you know what? It behooves me to learn more about the history of this, understand what I can do. And then I started to see that there were a lot of members of my community who couldn't get involved. Either they weren't citizens, so they were afraid of federal prosecution, or they didn't speak English, or they just didn't understand how to get engaged and didn't understand the law. I could do all three of those. So I said, there's no way that I can just sit back and not get involved in this process when I have all of these privileges, you know, um, that I have. And I think one of the most unexpected wins um, really happened last month in, in December when the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce called me up and said, hey, you know, you have been awarded the Rising Star of the Year Award for your work in cannabis. And the reason why it was so unexpected is because the Latino community is still very um, hesitant about this industry and because the conversation for them is different. Um, So I always tell folks that, you know, when you're talking to Latino community, it's a very different conversation. It's a very different narrative. You have to be persuasive in different ways because there are so many cultures at play that our war on drugs in the U.S. is not the same as their war on drugs. So with those differing conversations, it was always a little difficult to get the Latino community, at least, you know, folks that I was talking to on board. But I will say, you know, that the other three wins is that because I pushed so hard and because I was different, because I came from these communities who were harmed by the prohibition of cannabis, I had a very unique perspective. I grew up in a very low socioeconomic environment. I grew up with no money. I understood what it was like to work. I saw friends get arrested. I saw fights happening outside. I've heard gunshots. I've had a lot of interactions with police since I was very small. So I was able to have these conversations with legislators and to let them understand the types of the communities that they were making decisions for. So, you know, I can now at 30 years old, I can point to language in the statute and say, those are my words. I can point to language in the regulations and say, those are my words. And I can point to language in the Jersey City ordinance where I grew up and say, I helped shape this ordinance. So those were a couple of wins, you know, that I had um, on my end, but it was, it all just came down to leveraging my privileges that I didn't even know that I had. What a great story, Jess. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I'm so impressed with what you have done and how you've met the challenges in your life. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. That's really inspiring. Okay. We're going to wrap it up here, but before we go, I want to know what are you most excited about and what are you most concerned about federal legalization? So 
Great question. <laughs> so what I am most excited about, um, you know, with, with federal legalization is definitely the end of the arrest. Um, it's something that I want to see. It's why, you know, I, I've pushed, you know, also for federal decriminalization. Um, because my other concern with legalization is it also opens up, um, you know, the pathways for these much larger co companies, you know, big pharma, big tobacco, big alcohol to really start getting involved and gobbling up all these other companies. So I think, you know, it really is a double edged sword. But I do hope that the federal government, with the help of all these wonderful advocates, you know, on the ground and organizations doing really great work, that they do take an incremental approach to this, that it isn't sort of just a blanket approach of everything's legal and now everybody can sort of get involved but that they do take the first steps to remedy the harms caused by the criminalization um, of cannabis and look to those communities first instead of maintaining them as an afterthought, which is what we've seen in mostly other states. So I am excited about that because I do want the arrest to end. I don't want you know any folks with records to not be able to have access to employment and housing and education and things of that matter. But I am also concerned um, that if there are no social equity provisions, if there are these no guardrails in place to protect, um, you know, against a ton of M&A action that is sure to come, um, that all of the really great work that these advocates have done and that the states have been trying to implement for social equity will completely vanish. Um, so that's one thing, you know, that I'm, I'm quite concerned about. What are you looking forward to in 2022? In 2022, I am looking forward to going to Ecuador uh, sometime in October with my mom and visiting um, my home country. Um, and the reason for that um, is because I have been, you know, trying to get involved in the cannabis conversation down there. I have a lot of friends down there who are already involved, um, but I'd love to, you know, at some point down the road, be a part um, of that cannabis industry down there and, and in a way sort of be a bridge between my two cultures in the U.S. and in Ecuador. So I'm going to go with my mom sometime in October, visit, check things out, um, and see what's going on down there. That's, that's fantastic. Have a, have a wonderful time, and I wish you the best with that. That's fantastic. Great. Thank you so much. All right. Is there anything else that you want us to know, and where can women who are interested in learning more or who have questions for you, where can they reach you? Sure. So I can be reached. Um, my Instagram is probably the best way. So it is Canna Bogada, uh, which means cannabis lawyer. So C A N N A B O G A D A. Um, that's the best place to reach me in terms of seeing what events I'm a part of, where I'm speaking, or any sort of tidbits that that I like to provide. You know about my my own life. Is there anything else you want us to know before we go? Um, no, I think we've answered, you know, a lot of the questions. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jessica, for sharing your story and your wisdom with us today. And ladies, thank you for tuning in. If you haven't yet joined the Women Employed in Cannabis community, go to weicwomen.com. There you'll find all the details on membership for women working in cannabis. WEIC is a community that provides networking, mentoring, and support to women working in cannabis in the U.S., Canada, and around the world where there's an interest in cannabis legalization. We welcome women who are currently working in cannabis or curious about taking a leap into the industry. Consider becoming a WEIC woman member or WEIC business member for benefits and access across the network. And join us again for another conversation with women leading in cannabis.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.